The Classic is a podcast series from Off The Ball, bringing you the real-life drama behind some of sport's most fascinating stories. This is episode three. Ma'am, that's for you. The Ken Doherty story. There's a good chance you know the man we're about to spend the next while with. He's Ken Doherty, and this is his story. It's a story about places. Dublin, Ranelagh, Jason's, The Crucible. There's even a shed down the end of Ronnie O'Sullivan's garden. But it starts in a small house on Moorhampton Road. I grew up in Ranelagh. Uh, we, we moved to Ranelagh uh, from Moorhampton Road, where um, our landlord was trying to get out, out of the house for a couple of years. There was some sort of... What happened was the landlord was trying to get us out of his house for ages and we were trying to find another place. We couldn't find one and couldn't find one that was cheap enough, you know. So the landlord was doing all sorts of things to get us out. And I'm going back now a little bit. I'm drifting back a little bit. Anyway, he used to like lock the door when we go out, keep the water running when we were leaving. You know, we'd lock all the doors. Even when we are in the house, Chubb locked the front door. We had to get out in and out of the window, like, you know what I mean? And there was a picture of me in the paper when I was only a baby. My mother was handing me out, out through the window, you know, because we couldn't get out through the front door because of... And he used to come in and kick our toys, like, it'd be on the floor. I have a vivid memory of me playing with my uh, little sort of matchbox sort of little cars on the floor, like, you know? And he coming in and kicking them around and get out of the house and all, you know, and all this. We moved up to Renla Avenue in 1973, and I was four years old, and we'd been there in that house since 1981, when we got a, uh, the corporation had built a house on number number two, three, four, and five Renla Avenue, and we ended up getting one of those. We were very lucky. We were on the corporation house list, you know? It's in Ranelagh that Ken's story really starts, and it's where it always returns to. It was in that home in Ranelagh where Ken's path in life was laid out for him, or specifically, in the sitting room alongside his dad, Tony. My vivid memories of my father was watching snooker with him. And uh, I used to watch Pop Black with him. So he, he used to let me stay up to watch Pop Black. And, and that was when I first saw Alex Egan's play. And that's when I, I sort of wanted a little snooker table from, I think it was eight years of age, I wanted a little snooker table from Santa. And it was at the end of my bunk bed one Christmas morning. Like it was two foot by one foot snooker table. I woke up on the Christmas morning and there it was at the bottom of my bunk bed. And it gave me endless hours. I used to put it on the floor, on the kitchen table, anywhere. Just to, And it was like little marble balls, like, you know, little tiny little cues. They were only about like the size of a ruler. Uh, but I tell you, I was absolutely fascinated by it. And that was that's when my love for snooker really started. So, And that was from watching it with my dad. My dad was a big Ray Reardon fan. I saw Higgins and I was besotted by by Alex playing. And uh, we used to watch the World Championship as well. That was a big thing in our house. Outside of the family home, there's probably only one place closer to Ken's heart than any other. It's gone now, but it was, for a very long time, the centre of his world. Jason's in Ranelagh, of course. Jason's was like the hub for sort of adolescence because I had a jukebox, I had the Space Invader machines. You remember them? Like in the 70s, like, you know, in the early 80s. Uh, but the pool table was like a winner stay on type of thing. And that's when I started, you know, and, and that's what that's what uh, Jason's was to me when I was growing up in the sort of late 70s uh, in Renla. Initially, it was just entertainment. As I sort of got to maybe about 10, I was allowed to go into Jason's then on my own. And I used to go in and do the odd jobs there, like sweep up, like empty ashtrays, you know, uh, clean the table. And I'd get like the manager there, Andy Collins, uh, he was a great man and, and he was uh, he was sort of uh, very pivotal to me after a while because Andy used to play himself and we used to have a game 
And uh, when I started the beating, you know, we thought, oh, this kid can play, you know. I said, maybe with a, you know, a bit of help and a little bit of free practice and stuff like that, that maybe he might be able to uh, get a little bit better, you know. And that's where it all started from there. And then he persuaded the owner and I started getting free practice then. I come home from school, the bus, the 48A had stopped in Renla. The school bag would be on the back, I'd get into Jason's. It'd be thrown under the, under the snooker table. I'd clean up, get a few free games. Uh, and then back to uh, around to the house, which is only around the corner. I mean, my mother's backyard of a house used to back onto Jace. So even when you were going to bed at night, you'd still hear the clicking of the balls. You couldn't get away from it, you know? So, um, yeah, it was school bag under the table, play till six, and then around for dinner, and then your homework and then to bed, and then for the next day. You don't always realise you're on a long road while you're still travelling it. And the most important moments, the ones that will shape a lot of what's to come later, they can sometimes seem small as they're happening. We used to try and look for the best cues, and you sort of knew what the best cues were, the house cues, as they used to call them, you know? And most of them had Jason's written on them in any way. And uh, so you used to try and find the best cues that you could play with. But there was one day, uh, there was this cue that was up on the, on, the, on the rack, on the cue rack. And I knew it wasn't a house cue, it was like a nice ash cue, a little bit broken at the bottom. Uh, but I just picked it up and I started playing with it. And uh, I just loved it, you know, and it just felt really nice. It was a short cue and I could I could use it. And uh, it just played really nice, much better than any of the house cues. So somebody had obviously left it behind them and it probably left it on the table and it was put back up onto, onto, the, onto the cue rack. Uh, and that's when I found it. Uh, Ambie wasn't in this day. It was Noel, Noel Fannin who was... Uh, who was working the shift uh, this particular day. I'll never forget it, you know, I went up to him, I said, I said, no, I said, look, I says, somebody's left this cue behind, like, you know, I really like it, you know? I says, can I keep it if nobody comes back, like, to, to, to claim it, basically? And he said in his broad double, like, well, you know, give us a fiver for it and you can keep it, you know? Now, I was only, I was only 10, going on 11 at the time. I didn't have a fiver, you know? But what I did, I ran around to the house straight away to the mother. My mother was there and I said, look, mum, I said, I found this queue. I said, it's beautiful. I said, I'll do some jobs. I said, I'll, I'll get the money back. The guy wants a fiver for it. I said, if you could spare a fiver, you know, I'll, I'll give it back to you. Money was quite tight, even a fiver. You know, a fiver was a lot of money in that day for a 10-year-old. And uh, so anyway, she gave me the fiver. <laughs> and I went into the post office, which was right next door. And I changed the fiver into five pound notes at the time, the old pound notes, you know. Being in a snooker club, you start to learn these little, the little things, you know, you grow up very, very quickly, you know. So I was cute enough to, I went in to get five pound notes. I put three pound in my left pocket. I had two pound in my right hand pocket and I went back into them. And I put the, Sarah, uh, the sad face on, you know, saying that, look, Noel, I said, uh, I said, my mum didn't have a fiver, you know. I said, money's a bit tight at home. So she only had two quid, you know. The sad face must have worked because uh, he looked at the two pound and uh, he looked at the queue. He says, all right, give me the bleeding two pound. <laughs> so he gave him the two pound and I had the queue ever since. And uh, luckily enough, nobody came back to claim it. In those early days, Ken met Finn Rowan and through snooker, they began a lifelong friendship. Finn knew Ken was good. He was consistently good. Whereas we had a flash every now and again, you'd, you'd, you'd practice all week and you'd play well at tournament. And next week you were back to where you were, you were rubbish. But he was consistently good. He was playing a standard of snooker that we wanted to achieve. We were sort of hanging on to his coattails a wee bit. We just knew then that he was he was dedicated. He, he just wanted to win. He put in the time, he practiced. 
Um, and he was just so good. He was so sharp. A 13-year-old Ken was playing snooker in Jason's one afternoon when his life changed forever. I was in Jason's playing. A friend of mine that I was had just come in and he says, uh, he says, your dad's just after ha having a heart attack. He says he's after being taken away to hospital. We ran around to the house and uh, my mother was in an awful state and he had enjoying it, uh, but he had a clot in his leg and he was waiting for an operation, you know? I mean, we couldn't afford like private health insurance. So, you know, so he had this clot in his leg that he knew he had, the doctors knew he had, hospital knew he had, but there was no bed for him. And my mother used to say to him, you know, go out and lie down on outside, you know, we call an ambulance and just pretend you, you've had a heart attack or something. Cause that's the only way you'd get seen, you know? And he was too proud. He says, "I'm what are you talking about, woman? I'm not going out to lie on no, no uh, road, like, you know? And now he said, the bed will come, the bed will come, you know? It never came, you know? And he had a heart attack in Renlet on my way, on his way back from a school play. My sister was down in Muckross and he was walking back with her and he'd stop every like 10 minutes, you know, and, and give himself a rest. But he was obviously in a lot of pain and he took a heart attack outside the Sanford stores up there, uh, just near McSorley's. And it was heartbreaking for my sister because my sister was just, she was just 11. So, and it happened all in front of her. And uh, that was on the 1st of June, 1983. And he died a couple of days later in Vincent's. And we got a lift out to the, out to the hospital. I never got in to see him. It was only my brother and my mother had sort of gone in to see him, but I never actually, and that was sort of, sort of carried that with me a little bit, you know what I mean? Because I never actually got in to say a proper goodbye to him, you know? So um, that was something that I, I sort of regret a lot is not being able to say goodbye to him. He never really, he never saw me play in any sort of competitions or anything like that. So he never actually, actually saw me play a game of Snooker and Jason's or anything like that, which is, which is sad. And that sort of, you know, like when I used to see kids or, Young fellas and the fathers go around with them, you know, followed them around the snooker circuit and that, and that, that's what I missed a lot. You know, I, I knew he was always sort of there and I'd be always sort of, it would inspire me, but it was always, uh, yeah, I just wish he had been around a little bit longer, like, you know. In his teenage years, Ken was starting to look like he was a class above the players he'd grown up with and he spread his wings beyond Jason's, grabbing his cue and hopping on the 11 bus into town to take on seasoned players in clubs around the city. Talk about hustling, he'd go to the likes of the Cosmo, which was um, under 18s weren't allowed, but they sort of gave us grace to come in because we were good players. But Ken would have been a four uh, game of doubles with, with three other guys, and they'd be all like in their 50s, 60s, like, but he was well able to hold his own. And I think that's that's what made him such a good dogged player, is because he was he was willing to dig in battle. And it was at the Cosmo that Ken won the chance to visit the centre of the snooker world. I won a under-20 tournament here in the Cosmo in O'Connell Street. The owner, Jack Rogers, he said, whoever gets to the final and wins it and, and the runner-up, I will take them to Sheffield for the weekend. I won the tournament. It was 1985, I was 16 at the time. It was an under-20s tournament. And we went over to Sheffield. We got, we, we got the boat to Liverpool, right? He did it a cheap way. Like, he took the boat, the overnight boat, took eight hours to Liverpool and we got the train down to Sheffield. And uh, we sat at the number one side table and Steve Davis was playing Neil Fowles in the very first round. It was so quiet, you know, really eerie, uh, but so loud at times as well. 
But just to see Davis there, he was world champion. And to see him play in the flesh, and it was fantastic, you know? The place, like, it had every expectation that I have of it, that I had it watching it, watching the likes of uh, Alex Higgins win it in 82, and all those great matches, you know, where I was sat with my father, and uh, I sat there and I was just mesmerised. Like Over the next couple of years back home in Dublin, Ken came to the realisation he was going to have to make a choice and a move. I finished my leave in cert, and I was just over 17, and uh, I thought, well, I'd won the Irish Championships, Irish Amateur Championships here in 87. So I thought then in 1988 that it was time, I'd left school and I thought now was the time to go. It was a bit of a hit miss really, going into the unknown, but I have to go to England and see how good I am. Leaving Dublin behind, Ken made the trip across the Irish Sea, cue in hand, headed for London. I'll never forget it, I went over on the boat, I had 500 pounds, in my pocket and that was it like you know that's all the money I had in the world like you know anything that I'd sort of won or hustled or you know worked for that's all I had to my name and when that was gone I didn't know what it was going to do it was sort of a thing like just go and have a go and there was two of us that went over initially it was Anthony O'Connor from Cork and myself and we were staying in his mother's cousin's uh, house in a place called Tornham Green in Chiswick but unfortunately we were getting which was southwest London we were getting free practice in uh, the east side of London, which was like an, an Ilford Snooker Centre. There was about 36 stops on the district line to Barking Station, which was over in the east side of London in Essex. And then it was a bus ride from Barking Station into Ilford, and then a bus ride from Ilford up to Ilford Snooker Centre. And then we would get the free practice. We'd stay there for about six, seven hours a day. And then the journey back, you know, two buses, then on the district line, 36 stops back to Tornham Green. He was going to need to make a bit more than the £500 he'd brought over in his pocket. And for a snooker player without much cash or reputation, the Pro-Am circuit was a shot at going up against the pros and a decent payday if you did it well. I knew there was lots of Pro-Ams every weekend there, you know, that I could go and play in and like try and earn some money from them. But I didn't know how good I was, to be honest. You know what I mean? I knew I was Irish champion here, but there was another 100 players just like me on that circuit over there. My first big program that I played in was was in May 1988 and was in uh, Preston Holiday Camp. And we all took the journey up uh, from Ilford, got through the first round, it was on 100 quid, you know, got through the second round, I'm on 150 quid and a Pontins 50 quid voucher, you know. <laughs> uh, there was a thousand people in this program. Thousand people. It was unbelievable. It was at the, the the holiday camp. It was this was like Pontins, like Butlins here in back in you know in the eighties and seventies. And the place was packed, and it was all for the big big tournament. And I was fresh off the boat. I had no aspirations to win it. Just try to win a few matches and try and you know get a few bob and and, and keep me going. And uh, I had like I got I'm like qualified for the last thirty two right. Uh, I'm playing Mike Hallett because that's when the pros come in. There was eight pros that come in. Mike Hallett was in the top eight in the world. He was giving me 21 start upstairs on a table on the top floor in the holiday camp. And uh, I beat him 4-2, <laughs> you know. And I felt fantastic. It was like, you know, this was like, I was on lottery money now, you know. I was on about 500 quid. I'm in the last 16 of the tournament. And uh, I, ended up, I ended up winning the tournament, you know. I got... 2,500 quid. <laughs> I had five times my original stash and uh, I was flying and I never really looked back after that. I, I started, it gave me confidence that I never had before. Ken started to make more cash but he was still a while off going pro. 
Meanwhile, back in the snooker club in Ilford, Ken wasn't the only future star. There was one kid who stood out, a young Ronnie O'Sullivan. Ronnie was only about 12 then, you know. But his dad used to bring him up to the club and he'd play some of the players, play in the pro-ams and stuff like that. And even then, you could see, you know, he, he had a talent, like, you know. I mean, he was making century breaks at 10 years of age, you know, in pro-ams, like in competitions. At 12, he was making maximums, like, you know. And even at 12, for me, I was 18. He was still a good practice partner to play with. So his father used to bring him up to Ilford and we used to play. We used to really get on well. He was a nice little kid and very mannerly, you know. The odd time he might throw a little tantrum now and again. Some things never change, I suppose. He's still like that now. But he was great to play with. Ronnie O'Sullivan had a table built, a uh, snooker room built at the bottom of his garden in Ilford Lane. So when he didn't come up to the club, he'd, his father would ring me, might sometimes throw me a few bob to go down and practice with him, you know, down the bottom of his garden. So I, anyway, sent the taxi. I said, yeah, Ron, no problem. I'll come down and practice with him. Uh, sent the taxi for me to Ilford. Got in the car, down to Ilford Lane, down to the house. So I went down and we played. Said he had all the balls set up, you know, all clean, all nice, ready to go. He's really keen, you know, like when you're that age, you're so keen, really excited. So anyway, we played. We used to always play like best of 19, you know. Then we'd stop for lunch and then maybe another best of 19 in the afternoon. So we played the best of 19 and I was... I was sort of hammering and beating him. I think I beat him about 10-2, 10-3. Now, he was only 12 at the time. So anyway, he takes the cue up. He's a bit annoyed, like, you know, and he's a bit pissed off. So he takes the cue and puts it in his case. He says, I can't play now. I said, we'll go and have something to eat, but I can't play. He said, I have to do some homework and that, and I have to do some other chores, so I can't play this afternoon. I said, I might see you tomorrow or the next day. I said, yeah, no problem, no problem. Got out the door, into the taxi. Realised I've left me tail behind, like, you know, so I said, taxi driver, hold on. Back into the house, back through the kitchen, down through the garden and into the snooker room. And there was Ronnie doing the line-up practice in a way, you know. And he got really embarrassed, like his face went really red. And I said, no problem, Ron. I says, keep practicing. I said, I'll see you. I'll see you tomorrow, you know. The life of the newly arrived immigrant can be stop and start, moving from one place to another while you try to put down roots. For an amateur snooker player, it's even less predictable. Ken would move between different lodgings, staying for a while here and there. Some places were more interesting than others. We were renting different places, houses, and, and staying in B&Bs. We were staying in this B&B in Grove Road in Chabal Heath. The woman was really good to us, 50 quid, bed and breakfast. Sometimes she'd wash her clothes, sometimes we'd give us an evening meal, you know, which was great. You know, it was like a home away from home, a lovely little house. Uh, we were sharing a twin room, myself and another lad. And, uh, he was trying to do exactly what I was doing, but he, he wasn't sort of making any money. So he had to go and work and he had to get a job in the nighttime in the city, you know? So anyway, I'd finished my practice, gone back to the house, had something to eat, uh, watched a bit of telly up in bed. He used to come back at about like one o'clock, half one in the morning, get the last train out of uh, Liverpool Street. And he'd get in around about half one at night. And anyway, I'm up in bed, queue is under the bed, fast asleep. He comes in through the front door of the house and as he's on his way up the stairs, he sort of sees a flicker of light and smells something from the kitchen. He's gone into the kitchen, uh, opened the door and the woof of gas has hit him, you know. There was one ring of the gas cooker lighting, the other three were on full blast, not lighting, and the oven was on full blast, the, the gas coming out, not lighting. And it turns out that the husband of the house wanted to blow the whole house up. <laughs> Our room, our twin bedded room, was right above the kitchen as well. So if the kitchen went, I was going, I was going up with it. So thankfully he didn't come home too late that night. And uh, 
he says like he opened all the windows, you know, turned off the gas, obviously, and came up and woke me up, you know. Ken, you never to believe what's going on. Throughout those years in the UK, back home in Dublin, Ken's mum Rose kept the house running in Ranelagh. Anytime I'd come back home, I would always take a few bob and send her a few bob, you know. Um, and when she died, my sister found this letter and her little notes that she sort of kept. I'd sent her a little. I'd been home for like a weekend or something like that, you know, and I wrote her a little note. And I have it like with me in my phone, you know. It read like, uh, um, Mom, it's great to be home again, like to see you all, you know. And I had a wonderful time and uh, I hoped a few Bob will go towards the new kitchen. And I never really used to write many letters, but I, I wrote this one to her and she kept it all these years. And I only, I only got it when she passed away. The money got a bit better in 1990 when Ken turned pro at age 20. He worked his way through the smaller tournaments for the next few years before breaking into the top 16 in the world when he won the 93 Welsh Open. The next few years had mostly solid performances with the odd flash of what he would one day become. Three finals in ranking tournaments, including a final of the UK Championship in 94, but no big tournament wins. In the less prestigious non-ranking events, he had a handful of wins. A couple of Scottish Masters, one at the Civic Centre in Motherwell and an Irish Championship, which he raised in Jury's Hotel of Cork. Still a decent step off glory under the lights of the Crucible. Ken was one of the best in the world, no doubt about it, but he wasn't in danger of being mistaken for the world number one. By the start of the 97 season, he had never been ranked higher than ninth in the world. Early on in that season, there were signs he was starting to realise his potential. He made it to the semi-finals in the Masters and the UK Championship. But as the year wore on, Ken's form was on the slide drastically. We're rubbish. It was absolutely awful. No one really guessed. He wasn't even shown any form of practice or anything like that. But, you know, sometimes when you go in and you, he struggled in the first match and should have gone out. The funny thing was, going into Sheffield, uh, I had a terrible run-in. I lost in the Masters in, in Wembley Forest to Steve Davis. He beat me 6-0 or 6-1. Uh, I lost here at the Masters in, in front of your own crowd. It was, it was embarrassing, like Davis, like, beat me 6-1 again, you know, I was really low on confidence, you know, went to the British Open then, which was only like a couple of weeks before Sheffield, uh, I lost to Mick Judge, and my sort of top 16 place was in jeopardy, you know, had I lost my first round of the World Championship, which would have been a huge loss to go out of the top 16, which means you weren't guaranteed and, and all these events, and uh, so there was a lot of pressure just winning that first round. With the stakes looking bigger than ever, Ken knew he needed his edge back. And for that, he went back to an old practice partner. You know, I've I've every sort of uh, gratitude to Ronnie because he sort of helped me. We'd sort of fallen in and out of being friends, you know. But the two weeks before the World Championship, we sort of put everything aside and said, okay, let's practice, get ready for this World Championship. And we played each other every single day. Best of night in in the morning time. Stop for lunch, best of night in. Every day for two weeks. On the eve of the first round against Mark Davis, Ken fought with the fear that the next day could redefine his career. I wasn't thinking about winning the World Championship that year. Didn't think I had a chance. I was just thinking, win this first match, guarantee a top 16. And that was like a final to me, you know. And I eventually beat Mark Davis 10-8, but it was a really tough, hard-fought 10-8 match. And then once, once I'd won that match, it was like really strange. It was like the shackles had come off like a whole weight had been lifted. And then, with the pressure off, it began. I was playing Davis in the next round, who absolutely battered me uh, twice before. 
Ireland's Ken Doherty inflicted one of the worst defeats in the career of snooker legend Steve Davis last night. He reached the Embassy World Championship quarterfinals with a session to spare. Not since the six-time world champion lost 10-1 to Tony Knowles in 1982 has he experienced such a beating on his favourite stage, the Crucible in Sheffield. I ended up beating him 13-3 with a session to spare. Uh, I don't think that's ever happened to Steve Davis in, the, in all this time that he's played at the Crucible. So that sort of gave me then fantastic confidence going from then on, you know. Ken Doherty is into the semi-finals of the Embassy World Snooker Championships at the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield starting today. After one or two uncertain moments in his quarter-final against John Higgins last night, he finally pushed forward to claim the most important engagement of his life with a match against Alan Robidoux from Canada. Yeah, John Higgins was like, you know, so tough to beat. One of the well, one of the best players I've ever played, you know, best match players I've ever played, and even as, at that you know, at that age, and uh, matched him frame for frame, and ball for ball, and and eventually overcame him 13 nine. Ken Doherty reached the final of the World Snooker Championship here in remarkable fashion last night by beating French-Canadian Alan Robidoux 17-7. In a dramatic last session, Doherty, who was leading by 11 frames to 5 from this morning's activity, made short work of Robidoux to win his place in the final. By any standards, this is an astonishing performance. Against Elaine Robidoux, that was a lot easier. Tough match player as well, but uh, over like 33 frames, I just I couldn't see him beat me, you know, that type of way. I had a lot of confidence. And with that, just one hurdle remained. But it wasn't exactly going to be straightforward. Ken would face arguably the greatest man to ever play the game, Stephen Hendry, who'd be going for a sixth World Championship title at his fifth in a row. He's not lost a match here in the Crucible for like five years. He's gone for like, you know, six in a row. Like, that's uh, 36 matches, you know? He'd won 35 matches in a row in this place, like, you know? He knew his opportunity had come and, you know, you don't get to too many uh, World Championship finals. And then, of course, playing Stephen Hendry. I went to bed that night after beating Elaine Robidoux and I dreamt I was lifting the cup up and I was kissing the cup, you know, the way I watched Alex Higgins do it. And, you know, with all the lights in the crucible, like sort of like little stars. I was really calm. I was, I was excited. I was looking forward to it. You know, I was laughing and smiling, you know, behind the court and, you know, if the camera was on, I'd always betray that I'm nice and relaxed, you know. It really did help me because I didn't want to... Because most players, if they were playing Stephen Hendry, like Hendry just brushed him aside in the final, you know. He came out, didn't look like he was himself. I was, uh, I was matching him. I'd play him in my own way, you know. I knew I couldn't out-pot him or outscore him. But I was sort of, I got the, the nickname of Crafty Ken for a reason, you know what I mean? Uh, and I knew I could play him at that game and that was a game he didn't like. And I knew I had to be at my very best to beat him. I won the first session, 5-3. Uh, Stephen Hendry, 50. But that wasn't the old Stephen Hendry. So 6-4, could have been 6-5. He's missed the ping a couple of times. I got the black for a respot. We will respot the black. Yeah. Well, what a great way to win a frame on a respotted black. Put the cue down on the table. I went out, jumped out, like, you know, hop and skip out into the loo. So I'm standing there at the urinal and uh, the door 
flies open, you know, and then walks in and he stands beside. Normally, like, you go to the cubicle, maybe if somebody was standing, you know, you wouldn't, like, stand beside him. Anyway, he stands beside me and he looks at me and he knows, I knew you were going to get that f***ing double. He goes, you know, <laughs> and I said, well, I had to go for it. What could I do? You know, it was a shot to nothing, you know. Eventually won 6-2 that session. I was 11-5 up overnight, you know, and I'll tell you what, I slept well that night. Just needs the pink. As cool as you like. And Ken Doherty again increases lead at a massive 15-7. I only need three frames to be world champion, you know? You know the worst thing you can do when you've got a lead? Don't try and guard it. You know, like you've got your little nest egg and you're trying to hold on to it. You know, it's the worst thing you can do. Just go the way and play the way you've been playing. But it's very hard to do that. And you're thinking, oh, well, all I have to do is match him frame for frame right to the finish line and then I'll win, you know? But it doesn't always work out like that. And suddenly, it's like the old Stephen Hendry. That's when the shit hit the fan. <laughs> that's when the nerves set in. Uh, and that's when I started the bottler. You know, that's, that's when I did see the winning line. And he started to come back. Frame conceded. Frames. Doherty concedes. Hendry narrows the gap to five frames. And he wins the 15-10. The break of 110 reduces Ken Doherty's lead to four. Then he wins 15-11. Yeah! And Stephen Hendry reduces the gap to three frames. Five in a row he's won. And he, he wins that frame with another 60-yard break. Now it's 15-12. Doherty's just got to stick to his game and stick to his method. He's not got to contemplate the appalling prospect of having his heart's desire snatched away. I'm thinking to myself, oh, I said, he's going to come back. And I'm, now I'm seeing the headlines, Doherty loses from, like, the unassailable lead, you know? All those thoughts were going into my mind. There's no doubt the wind is in Hendry's sails now. It got to 15-12. We have one frame before the mid-session mid interval. It looked like he was going to clear up. Two reds left. So it's going to go 15-13, looking like... If Hendry pops this, all the other balls are on. And he's missed one red down the bottom of the... behind the black, down along the, the top cushion. You'd expect him to get it. sort of wobbled in the pocket and just stood over the pocket. And that will be a re relief to Ken. A relief for Ken. Was that your entry for understatement of the year, John? You know, well, I raced out of the chair. I couldn't believe. Part of the red, part of the black, and it's an interval lead, 16-12. Well, I never felt so relieved in my life. Ken Doherty, 17. And it was easy from there to clinch the frame, 16-12 at the mid-session interval. Back in the dressing room, it was so much more just relaxed again, you know, and and then I went back out and then win the, win the World Championship. From there it felt inevitable. Ken won the next two frames and as he circled the table under the crucible lights one final time, the lifetime that led him to that moment came rushing back. When I was potting those final few balls and I was clearing up, the roar was coming from the balcony, you know, the lads were up there. I remember distinctly having flashbacks, you know. The memory sort of came back of watching it with my dad. He was the the first thought in my mind when I, when I, you know, when I first saw like Higgins win it in 82 and then Dennis win it in 85. But when Higgins won it in 82, my dad was still alive. So those sort of memories came flooding back to me, you know. 
he was he was uh, the first person that I was thinking of when I was when I was bopping up those balls and I thought, yeah, it's nice, nice finish, you know. And I always think back to, you know, Jason's as well when the first time in Jason's and the, my cue that I got, and that was the cue I picked off the pill rack, paid the manager two quid for it that my mother had given me, uh, and that was the cue that I'd won the world championship with. And with a smile on his face, he lined up the final shots. I walked around, potted the brown, perfect on the blue, then I only need the blue and I'm on the pink and I know it's all over then. And I knew it was going to be in the World Championship. Yeah! There's no better feeling in the world. Sheffield and the Crucible there to belongs to. Ken Doherty, who beat Stephen Hendry. 1812 to become the 1997 Embassy World Champion. I couldn't wait to get on the phone, you know, to ring my mother and say, look, I've won this World Champion. I couldn't wait to get home to hand it to her, you know. Ken Doherty was on his way to give Irish fans a close-up look at snooker's most prestigious prize. The biggest welcome was from his mother, Rose. Landed at the airport with the cup. All the other passengers were held back. I had to come down with the cup down the stairs. And my mother was there and it was a huge big crowd. And my mother hated like, you know, photographs or, you know, attention around. Like she, she never really liked that. She shied away all the time, you know. But she was there at the bottom of the stairs, you know. And uh, I came down with the cup and I handed it to her. I said, Matt, that's for you, you know. And she put her arms around me and she was crying. And uh, yeah, I mean, that was, that was, I think, more special than anything, you know. Then the world snooker champion began his journey home to Ranala as thousands of people took time out to salute his great achievement. The open top bus through the city centre to the mansion house, you know, where there was a civic reception. And that was where the, 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 the chief superintendent said to me, he said, uh, he says, you know, Darty, he says, uh, he says, La he says, on Monday evening, he said, the Central Police Station in Dublin. He said, we hadn't got a phone call there for three hours. He says, when you were playing that final, that final, he said, we get a phone call every five minutes, you know? He says, you should be on television more often. He says, you've stopped crime in this city. He says, you'll make my job a hell of a lot easier, you know? So uh, that's what he told me in the mansion house. I don't know whether it was fully true or not, but I still tell the story to this day. After a civic reception at the mansion house, it was time to go back to where he started his snooker career almost 20 years ago and enjoy the party atmosphere. We're all very proud of Ken, all those people in Renala, we really are. Hundreds packed into Jason's snooker hall to see Doherty return to his alma mater. For the next year, the most famous trophy in snooker spent most of its time in that same room where Ken had first fallen in love with the game. But it was on my mother's television in number three, Rental Avenue, on the television. And full flow, like the window, there's the telly, there's the cup on top of the telly. People would be knocking on the doors, coming in, can we get a picture with the cup, missus? I says, yeah, yeah, come on. <laughs> Do you want a cup of tea? You know, she was like Mrs. Doyle, like, you know. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's the way it was, you know, and uh, I had such a wonderful time. And not that there was much danger of it, but Ken's mother, Rose, made sure the success wouldn't be going to his head. 1997, I'm world champion, take the cup home, hand it to her, she gives it a big kiss, it goes on the top of the TV. Uh, we went out celebrating, of course, and, you know, I'd been celebrating for about like six months afterwards, you know what I mean? But one of this particular night, and she used to, she loved cooking, and it was a spar in Renla, shopping basket it used to be, and then it became a spar. Peter's one used to own it. And uh, her sort of, her apple tarts were legendary, you know? So Peter Dwan, the owner, says, will you make a few apple tarts and we'll put them in the shop, you know? And 
She says, yeah, no problem. So she, she, she was making, she was cooking like weekends was like apple tarts, you know, and, and she'd be sending them down to Despair and they'd be selling them for a few bob and she'd be getting a few bob, you know, but she loved doing it and she wasn't making much money. She used to make wedding cakes and everything. I mean, one, one year, uh, Christmas cakes as well. She made about 50 Christmas cakes one year for different people. Like, and she wasn't really making that much money, but she just loved it, you know? Uh, but anyway, I'm upstairs one more, and I'm supposed to send the, the guy up, you know, the manager of the shop or one of the one of the uh, young fellas in the shop is supposed to come up and collect the the big sort of bread basket of like apple tarts, and it might be about ten or fifteen at the moment. And uh, it was too busy down the shop; they couldn't send one up. So I'm upstairs, of course, in bed after a late night, you know. Can it get up and take these apple tarts down? Oh, I says, you're joking. So anyway, I had to get up out of the bed, uh, get dressed, got the big bread basket, right? There's about 15 apple tarts on I'm walking down the middle of Renla on a Saturday morning, world champion or not, you know, with the apple tarts into the shopping basket. I despair what it would have been, you know, and, and the car's beeping the horn like, Darty, what are you doing? If you're not earning enough money for your world championship, you're selling apple tarts, you know. But that was my mother, you know. Ken lives in Dublin now, not far from Ranla. He still plays with that same cue, but Jason's has closed a long time ago. He's still playing professionally, but for a lot of snooker players, the game can be as frustrating as it can be mesmerising. Some of the world's finest talk about having a love-hate relationship with a game where millimetres mean the world of difference. For Ken, he understands that feeling. It's such a tough game, but it's such a beautiful game. It's And, like, I'm just so grateful that I, I play at snooker, you know, because it's been so good to me. And I, I love it, you know, it is a beautiful game. I will always be grateful for it, you know, and it's so hard at times, you know, you, you get so down, you know, from your defeats or... You know, and sometimes you, you hate the game or you hate losing, you know, that's the thing. It's a competitive sort of spirit that you never that never leaves you, you know, no matter what age you get. And But that's the beauty of sport, you know, and that's what keeps you going because you know the next day is another day. It's a different day and someday or the next day will be different to the, to the one before that. So I love, I love playing it still. Uh, I love talking about it. I love watching it and I just... Uh, I'll, uh, I'll be forever indebted for what it's for what it's given me, you know. Ma'am, that's for you. The Ken Doherty story was narrated by Richard Chambers. The program was produced by Shane Hannan and Owen Brennan. Sound designed by Frank Sweeney. The series producer is Owen Brennan. This program was made with the assistance of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, funded by the television license fee.